So do you remember learning how to ride a bike? And if you do remember learning how to ride a bike, do you remember whether or not you use training wheels or not? Travis Foreman is from Bridgehampton, New York, and this summer he started a bike lesson training time for kids ages three to nine. And it was so good this summer that it spilled over into the school year because he's also a teacher at the Hayground School. And so he started an after-school program for teaching kids how to ride bikes. But Travis is not really big on training wheels. This is what he said. Training wheels are a disservice while trying to learn how to ride a bike. A kid that feels comfortable on training wheels will want to stay on training wheels. So I just take them off. Training wheels, they're they're helpful. They're really helpful. But his point is good. The training wheel, although it provides some comfort in learning, it could lead to you not being able to learn. It could hinder or stunt your growth. It could keep you from moving forward. Now, training wheels on bikes aren't the only training wheels in life, right? There are other things that are good but can make us comfortable in some wrong ways, right? Are you too comfortable with something in your life right now? You got, you got, got way too much comfort happening in your world, the, the kind of comfort that's stunting your growth, the kind of comfort that's hindering you from growing. Is there something in your life that's hindering your soul from finding joy? Is there something in your life that's keeping you away from that which is good and holy and happy? And maybe to make the rubber hit the road just a little harder, is there some comfort in your life that's actually peddling you away from God? Well, how could you find out? How would you know? Well, we're going to spend a moment looking into a moment of the life of Jesus, and hopefully it'll help you at least have a a movement toward finding out if there's just this one kind of comfort that might be keeping you from God. Listen to Luke chapter 13, beginning with verse 14. But the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. So here's an official in the church, a church leader, and he was ticked off, he was wound up, he was resentful. Why? Well, because a woman who had crippling pain, who was doubled over, could barely walk, that woman got healed by Jesus at the church that day. And that's what ticked him off. That's why he was wound up. Now, this isn't a a fancy television televangelism TV special we're talking about here, okay? This isn't a a woman who who somehow was part of some staged act that Jesus and the disciples are putting together. This is a woman who had been going to this church probably for years. And so this church leader and other people in the church, they knew her situation. They knew her situation had been going on for a long time, and they knew her situation made her daily life so hard. So difficult. Kent Hughes said this about this church leader. He had no heart to pity the poor bent woman's plight. No eye for the beauty of Christ's compassion. No soul to rejoice with the woman's deliverance. No ear for the music of her praise. 
See, the sad and discouraging reality is, is this man was standing in a room when Jesus healed a woman, and he didn't see it. He was spiritually blind. He was spiritually deaf. He was spiritually ignorant. He sees this woman healed by Jesus, and the first thing that pops into his mind is offense and resentment. It's the first thing he began to think about. He didn't wonder if it was staged. He didn't wonder if it was some kind of trick. He didn't wonder if it was some kind of you know, hokey emotionalism. He didn't even wonder if the woman was happy now that she could stand up straight after 18 years. No, the first thing that he was was ticked off and resentful. And how do we know that? Well, because his resent did not stay in his mind and in his heart. Listen to the rest of verse 14. A synagogue official began saying to the crowd in response, there are six days in which work should be done, so come during them and get healed and not on the Sabbath day. So he goes from being resentful in his mind to being resentful with his words. And naturally, since Jesus was the one who did these things, since Jesus was the one that healed, he directs his words, his resentful words, toward Jesus, right? Right? No, he, he turns to the crowd. He doesn't turn to Jesus. He, he turns to the crowd and addresses the crowd. Now, why would he do that? Well, what we know from the Bible and the synagogue, what we know from history in the synagogue, we can pull together at least three answers, and that's this. He lacked humility, he lacked compassion, and he lacked authority. That's why he turned to the crowd instead of turning to Jesus. See, humility is interesting. Humility teaches us to go to a person if we have an issue with them. Now, there are certain times and certain situations that, that make that at times maybe impossible or, or just not good for the moment, but those certain situations rarely apply to our situation, right? It's just we don't want to go to the person. You know, we, we don't want to approach the person directly. And, and we do that because it's the opposite of humility. Humility would lead us to do that. The Scriptures command us to do that. But, but we don't do it because we're kind of the opposite. We go the path of arrogance. See, the path of arrogance and, and not dealing directly with a person, it's, it's driven by a lot of different things. Sometimes it's driven by the fact that we don't want to be in conflict. Ooh, I don't, I don't want any conflict with anybody. Sometimes it's driven by the fact that we don't want to talk to somebody or, or directly address someone because we might get corrected back. We might be wrong. What we're saying may not be right. The reason that we're going to correct could be corrected. Other times we don't want to go to somebody because, look, let's just be honest, we love gossip. We love it. We would much rather have the conversation with 10 other people and kind of defend our stance. And also sometimes we won't go directly to a person because we love drama. Look, you, you get a room this big and you put one person in there and you're going to find somebody who loves drama. All right? I hope you caught that math. All of us have moments where we love drama. Some of us love drama all the time. The more drama and the more attention we can draw to our life, the better. And so that's the path of arrogance. It's not the path of humility. See, this leader, he lacked humility because humility would have waited. Humility would not have addressed anything in the moment. Humility would have waited at least till after the service, but more than likely later in the day or, or later in the week. Humility would have given him the opportunity to, to think and pray and, 
and sort through some of the things going on in his mind. Whether it was based on fear or discernment, in the Gospel of John, in the third chapter, we find Nicodemus. He goes and finds Jesus when he can have a one-on-one conversation. See, humility teaches us wisdom in approaching people. Arrogance, on the other hand, stirs us to say whatever we're resentful about right then. You know, whatever we're resenting, we just go ahead and say it right then and there. Arrogance stirs us to try to get other people, too, to get in on our resentment. We, we try to pull people in with what we're resentful about. And sometimes, in, in this man's case, we, we try to use the public to do that. We use our, our public title, our public position, or sometimes just the fact that we're out in public. We'll try to use that to try to gain the attention of people for our resentment. So by his attitude, by his actions, this church leader showed that he lacked humility. He didn't have the humility to deal well and and wisely with this. He also lacked compassion. Let's just say that he was angry and confused, okay? Indignant. Let's just say he didn't quite understand, okay? Let's, Let's give him a little bit of a break. I mean, really, if, if somebody came down here to the front this morning and they had been hunched over for 18 years and they miraculously got healed, you can talk all you want to, but it'd feel a little weird and we wouldn't know exactly what to do with it because it's not normal for us. So, so we'll give him a little bit of a break. Let's just say he's confused. Let's just say he doesn't understand. Even so, he shows no compassion for this woman. She's in pain. She's doubled over. He shows no compassion that she has been suffering. And even more so, he shows no compassion in the moment that she's healed. He didn't even try to be politically correct. Drop some some fantastic one-liners into that. Oh, yeah, folks, look, this is the kind of exciting thing that happens right here at our synagogue. So come back next week to, to First Baptist Synagogue of the Synergized, Sanctified, and we will love to have you back again. And, and on your way out, sign up for our newsletter and sign up for our email list and, and make a donation in the offering box and, and please come back next Sunday. He, he didn't even use it to his advantage. He didn't even try to play up the politically correct angle of this amazing thing that happened. Kent Hughes makes these observations on this church leader. He was a chicken-hearted religious snob. <laughs> well, there you go. He did not lower himself to address Jesus directly, but returned, but turned to the people. So he didn't have the humility to, to turn to Jesus. He turned to the crowd. He goes on. His heart was pumping great amounts of formaldehyde. He breathed arsenic. He fancied that he was a lover of the law and its protector. However, His lack of love for the woman showed that he did not love his neighbor as himself, indicating that he did not love God. That's that's a huge statement. His lack of love for the woman shows a lack of love for his neighbor, therefore shows a lack of love for God. On another day, Jesus was being confronted by some religious folks, and, and he responded by repeating the words that God gave to Isaiah, Isaiah 15, I mean Matthew 15, 8 through 9, Jesus said this, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Their, their lips were there, but their hearts were far away. This church leader, 
He saw the truth of God. He heard the truth of God. It was right there in front of him. He saw the hands of heaven heal a woman. But according to everything we see, even though he knew she was not a faker, his first response was to be offended and resentful. By his attitude and his actions, he showed that he had a lack of humility, he had a lack of compassion, and he also had a lack of authority. Listen again to what he said to the crowd, verse 14. There are six days in which work should be done, so come during them and get healed, and not on the Sabbath day. I was riding down the road earlier this week, and I was just kind of cruising along going, I wonder how he said that, you know? Did, he, did it sound like an Ebenezer Scrooge kind of thing? You know, there are six days in which work should be done, so come during them and get healed, not on the Sabbath day. You know, was, was, it, was it cranky like that? Or did it sound like a kind of a, a snotty, you know, private university professor? There are six days in which work should be done, so come during them and get healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Now, I'm curious on the tone. How did he say this? How did he communicate this strange message to the crowd? I don't know. But what he said was this. Look, you know, it, it's Sunday, people. And... You know, we have a, a pretty strict no-healing policy on Sundays, okay? There's just there's too many people here. There's too much paperwork involved in miracles. You know, we, we just can't do this. So, so just not today. Come back tomorrow or come back between now and, and next week, and, and we'll take care of you then. See, here's the only problem with what he says. This woman probably has been coming to the church for years, so why had he not already taken care of her? Why tell her to come back tomorrow? He still won't be Jesus. He still won't be able to heal her. Why push her away? Why make this his argument? Because this argument makes absolutely no sense. Oh, just, just come back tomorrow. We'll take care of you. No, you won't. Because you can't. Because he had no divine authority. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13 says this. Appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. Esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So let me just kind of make a general comment about church leaders at any church, in any gospel-believing, gospel-preaching church too. If your church leaders, whoever that may be, a, a pastor, minister, church staff, worship leaders, Sunday school teachers, uh, volunteer leaders, deacons, elders, who, whoever you want to put in that mix, if your church leaders are for the most part in a way that honors God trying to obey what they've been called to do. Now, mark you, what they've been called to do according to the Scriptures, not what you think they should do, not what you want them to do but what the Scripture has called them to do. If, if, generally speaking, the church leaders are honoring God and following in line with what they've been called to do, then do not place unnecessary expectations on them. Do not demand that they cooperate with your music styles and your dress styles and your ministry styles and your building styles or any other styles that you prefer. And don't hold guilt or shame over their heads if you don't get your way from them. Don't do that according to the Scriptures. Appreciate them, esteem them, love them, encourage them, challenge them, admonish them when necessary. But if they're generally speaking, honoring God's Word and following Jesus, then, then just jump in and do life together with them. But with that said, 
There is no pastor. There is no minister. There's no worship leader. There's no church staff. There's no deacon. There's no elder. There's no Sunday school teacher. There's no church member. There's no evangelist. There's no best friend that's Jesus. No one. There is no one who has ever or will ever have the perfect match of humility and compassion and authority that Jesus has. There is no one like Jesus. So we follow him and we follow him alone. I love this description, this picture of Jesus. Jeff Thomas says this, one moment he is cuddling babies and the next moment he is confronting rulers. One moment he is lying exhausted and asleep in a boat that's being rocked by a storm. The next moment he's ordering the storm around. One moment he's weeping at the grave of his dead friend Lazarus. The next he is ordering death itself to release his friend. This is Jesus. And he says this, One moment he is on his knees like a slave washing other people's dirty feet, and the next he says that he's their Lord and Master. There's there's no one like Jesus. There's no one like this. Not in your home, not in your family, not at your job, not in any church in the universe. No one is like Jesus. He is alone. He is by himself. His humility, his compassion, his authority have absolutely no comparison. So please set your affections on Jesus. Set your emotions on Jesus. Set your dreams, your plans on Jesus. And set your disappointments down at the feet of Jesus. Set your fear down at the feet of Jesus. And set your life in Jesus and set your death in Jesus and don't set any of those things in anybody else ever ever why this is what the scripture says about Jesus Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever listen if I'm having a stressful week My weight is different than yesterday and different than the day before, and it's not lower, it's higher. I would love if stress caused me to lose weight. It just doesn't. It increases my desire to eat more donuts and more pie and, you know, second helpings, well, fourth helpings of bacon. I mean, you know, there's there's something about stress that changes my scale in my bathroom. Now, guess what? Every single one of us, whether it's weight or something else, we, we're always changing. Always. Listen, one moment you're great at handling this situation with your kid, and then the next moment you stink at it. You handled it really, really bad. One day your boss says, great job, and the next day you know, you're in a bad mood. You know, we, we change every day. We're, we're different. Some of us are more consistent than others, and I would encourage us toward those paths. But the reality is there's no one like Jesus. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. So when we say set your affections on Jesus, we're not talking about what you think about Jesus. And we're not talking about what your buddy thinks about Jesus. And we're not talking about even what your grandma might think about Jesus. We're talking about the Jesus of the Bible. Not just one verse, but all of the verses. 
Be very careful following after or befriending someone who says to you, oh, I'm following the real Jesus. I'm following the true Jesus. I'm following the historical Jesus. If you just look over the last 100 years of theologians and philosophers that said things like that, what those led to were terrible, and they were much anti-gospel. So, so don't follow after that notion. Follow after what Jesus has said. I know in your Sunday school classes today, I think you talked about the crucifixion. So Jesus was, was brutally executed on a cross outside of Jerusalem. And then three days later, he gloriously arose from the grave. Up from the grave, he arose. And our hope is found in that. Our hope is found in the resurrection. It's why we sing that we believe in it. But there were a couple of guys that didn't know that had happened. They didn't know Jesus had been risen. And so they're walking down this road. They're, they're very discouraged. They're very sad. And the risen Jesus joins them, starts walking down the path with them. But, but somehow, supernaturally and probably a little bit naturally, they didn't recognize Jesus. They didn't know he was Jesus. And so Jesus starts talking to them about Jesus. And what he said to them was this, look, if you guys want to follow the real Jesus, then you need to have more family values. If you want to follow the real Jesus, you need to do more social if you want to follow the real Jesus, you need to be more authentic and more, more less stuffy in your worship services. That, that's what you need to do if you're going to follow the real Jesus. That's what Jesus said to him, right? No, it's not. This is what he said. Luke chapter 24, verse 27. Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. This is a huge statement. So are family values bad? Nope, not at all. Fantastic. Is social work bad? Nope, fantastic. Super. Is authentic worship and less stuffy worship services bad? Nope, great stuff. But none of those things are the gospel. None of them. So if we want to know Jesus, if we want to know who Jesus is, then Jesus says, look at the Bible. Jesus says, look at the Scriptures. If you want to know who I am, don't trust anything but God's Word. It's why we've been given His Word. And when we begin to say, oh, well, I've found the real Jesus, if it's not the Jesus of the pages from Genesis to Revelation, it's a false Jesus. This church leader, he was preaching about Jesus every week. He was preaching about the Messiah from the Old Testament. And then the Messiah is standing in front of him doing an amazing miracle. And his first response is to be offended, to be resentful, and to reject the power and the authority of Jesus. He lacked the authority of heaven. He lacked humility. He lacked compassion. So what did he do? Well, what anybody who doesn't have the right authority does, they bully people. And so that's what people who don't have authority, they, they're bullies. And so he began to try to bully the crowd. Now, why was he trying to bully the crowd? Was he trying to, to get the, tr the crowd to, to learn to be a better church? 
Was he trying to improve things in the church? Was he trying to, to help people grow spiritually and mature in the gospel? Was he, was he trying to, to move the church forward? Was he trying to get the church to love people in the community more? No, not at all. He was trying to protect his traditionalism. Now, don't get too thrown off with that word tradition, okay? Uh, the word tradition sometimes can throw us off, and I've shared with you before, I'll share it again. There are traditional traditions, and some traditional traditions are fantastic, and some traditional traditions are terrible. There are contemporary traditions, and some contemporary traditions are fantastic, and some contemporary traditions are, are terrible. So it's not the tradition itself. It's the warning that Jesus gives us behind the concept of tradition. Remember the warning from Jesus that he gave repeating Isaiah? This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of, of men. Harold O.J. Brown said this about the, the dangers of tradition. If we consider faith as a climber trying to scale a snowy mountain peak, the one group will have him so packed in flowing garments that he can hardly move. You can see that, right? It's kind of like when, when Saul tried to give David all of his armor and you know, he couldn't stand up under it because there's so much stuff. So yeah, we're going to try to get a, a guy climbing the, the, the mountain of faith and we're going to load him down with so much stuff from the backpack store that he can't even move. That, that's one way. And then he says this, while the other might have him naked and barefoot or to be more decent and short and sneakers and in imminent danger of hypothermia. In other words, we have two extremes. And as we have said many times over the last few years, don't go to extremes. That's the message that we get constantly from the New Testament in particular. Don't go to extremes. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And then if there is an idol, then stop worshiping it. My brother-in-law told me yesterday that that their church made two big commitments when they first started. I think they're, they're in their 15th year maybe. And all along, God has been doing amazing things in their church. But he told me yesterday that, that they're making some big changes in the church. And one of their leaders, when they were communicating this to the congregation, the leader said, on behalf of the elders, we ask you to forgive us that we made these two great things idols in our church. It's a big thing to say in front of 600 people. Here are these two great things that are doing wonderful things for the gospel, and we made them idols and said we will never color outside of these two lines. They were good things, but they weren't the gospel. Harold O.J. Brown goes on to say this. We need to accept tradition and principle, and at the same time, we need to be critical of traditions, both our own and those of others, lest they become the commandments of men about which Jesus warns us. So again, with humility, with authority, with grace, with mercy, with love, Jesus heals this severely crippled woman in the synagogue, and the synagogue leader immediately responds by being resentful. How dare he do something like that in our church. So how does Jesus respond? Listen to verse 15. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? 
Now, contrary to the immature showboating church leader, Jesus directly addresses him. He doesn't turn to the crowd. He directly addresses the leader. But here's the thing. What he says to the leader, anybody in the room could hear. And anybody in the room, it might apply. Because some of the people in the room were thinking just like the church leader. And so Jesus turns and he uses that endearing term that always wins people over. He says to them, hypocrites. I mean, that always works. Please use that when you go and talk to people. It it will definitely make the conversation go well. (laughs) No, poor Jesus. He he didn't know how to win people over, right? So how is this leader a hypocrite? And, And maybe how are some of the other people in the room hypocrites? Well, their hypocrisy was that they were still honoring the Sabbath, right? I mean, that's what Jesus says, right? He says, you know what, you guys, y'all are still keeping the Sabbath holy, and, and, and you don't have to do that anymore. You know, these are modern times, and, and the Sabbath, is, it's silly and unnecessary. That, that's what Jesus says, right? No, not at all. In no way does Jesus question the Sabbath. It's, it's not the Sabbath that he's questioning. So the Sabbath is a whole other sermon series, but let me just make a, just a really quick comment, very general about the whole concept of the Sabbath, just, just for this. Do your best to make Sunday different. Just, just do your best to make Sunday different. Sometimes work makes that hard. Sometimes health makes that hard. Sometimes other obligations can make that hard. Sometimes the weather can make that hard. Sometimes a natural disaster might make that hard. But to the best of your ability, do your best to make Sundays different. Do your best to, to not do anything that would hinder gathering together with other believers and worshiping Jesus. Just do your best to honor the Lord with one day and really all our days. So what was their hypocrisy? Well, even though they had this high view of low impact, no working on Sunday, they did have this one thing they would do. They would unleash their animals and lead them to go get water. I mean, really, straight off the top of our head. (laughs) So what? (laughs) Why is that a big deal? Jesus, what are you talking about? Why is that something that a hypocrite would do? Make sure their animal got water. Well, listen to verse 16. Jesus goes on. And this woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? This is is not hard to understand. Jesus, hang on. Let me see if I got your math right. So it is good and holy and kind to make sure that your animal is unleashed and walk to water. But it is not good, it is not okay, it's not kind for a woman to be unleashed from her pain. Now how do you come back from that, right? So, so women, it's okay, you support getting your donkey water but you don't support this crippled woman being healed. I mean, the math is terrible, right? I mean, who's the real donkey in that story? Let me say this. It's somewhat easy for us to to hear that and go, oh, man, what a a hypocrite, you know? What a a church leader that, that he cares more for his animals than he would for this woman who is in need. But remember, as unsettling and as uncomfortable as it is for us to remember and to hear these things, remember, we live in a day 
when every year hundreds of thousands of babies do not have their life continued. And we buy strollers for pets. See, that's, that's the day we're, we're in. So we always need to be careful to read these old stories and go, oh, we're not like that. And nothing's new under the sun. It just has different titles. It has a different view. So the church that day was full of people, but really, in a sense, there were only three. Jesus, the crippled woman, and the resentful church leader. So, where are you in relation to Jesus if we were to use those categories? Are you like the crippled woman? I'm so thankful for Steve's prayer earlier. Lord, somebody here is, is just being weighed down. It's beautiful. Listen, are you weighed down today? Is there something that's so heavy on your life you, you need it to be removed? Is it sin? Is it fear? Is it despair? If so, then, then turn to Jesus. Come after Jesus and be free. That doesn't mean life is going to be perfect and, and everything is going to go great, but, but be free from sin. Be free from despair. Find the hope and the strength and the peace that can only come in Jesus. Or maybe you're kind of like the church leader. There's something you're resentful about. Maybe you're so wrapped up in, in your religious activity, or maybe you're so wrapped up in your moralism that you can't see that, that you're weighed down too. Peter Coe is a pastor in Australia, and in looking at Paul's letters to the Romans and to the Galatians, he says it, it kind of seems a little bit like the, the law in the Old Testament is kind of like training wheels. This is what he said. A new covenant Jew had to take the scary step of not relying on the works of the law and instead to find their relationship with God leaning solely on the grace of God through Christ. That's a big change. They had to take the scary step of not thinking that they were very religious, of not thinking that they were very spiritual, of not thinking that they were very moral. They had to take the scary step of saying, I need Jesus. I desperately need Him. My faith has to only be in Him or I have no faith. I have no faith. The training wheel, so to speak, we're holding this church leader back. Al Mohler says this about moralism. He says, moralism produces sinners who are potentially better behaved. <laughs> potentially better behaved. The gospel of Christ transforms sinners into the adopted sons and daughters of God. That's a huge difference. Moralism will tell you to be a better American. The gospel will say, be in the family of God. Be saved, redeemed. Moralism will tell you, you can do it. You can be better behaved. The gospel will tell you, you're dead in your sins. Please come to Jesus and find life. 
So this church leader who saw Jesus, he heard Jesus, he saw the gospel, he heard the gospel, and he said, no, no, I am going to keep my religion. Listen, please don't be that guy. Please, just just quit trying to be better behaved and repent and come to Jesus and be free. Be. Find. Discover the joy of what it means to be a true son of God. Ladies, be. Find. Discover the joy of what it means to be a true daughter of God. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus and discover what it means to really be free. To be free.